Hi everyone, welcome to Outgrow's Marketer of the Month. I'm your host, Dr. Saksham Sharda. I'm the creative director at Outgrow.co. And for this month, we're going to interview David Tabachnikov, who is the CEO at Scholarship Owl. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you for having me. So we're going to begin with a rapid fire round just to break the ice. Uh, you get three passes. In case you don't want to answer the question, you can just say pass. Uh, but try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only, okay? Yeah, sounds cool. All right. So the first one, how long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? <laughs> uh, two hours. Okay. Most embarrassing moment of your life? Most embarrassing uh... Oh, we'll have to pass. You took too much pass, time. All right, yeah. next. How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Mm, three to five. Okay. Fill in the blank. An upcoming marketing trend is blank. Um, creators and influencers. Okay. The city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Tel Aviv. Pick one. Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. The first movie that comes to your mind when I say the word ambition. Mm. Inception. Okay. When did you last cry and why? Oh. Don't remember. <laughs> Past. Okay. The biggest mistake of your career. Um, going to Google. Okay. Uh, how do you relax? Mm, walks or video games. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Actually, can I change the answer for the previous one? That's <laughs> okay. <not> right. <laughs> so how do you relax? Scu scuba diving. <laughs> okay. How many cups of That's coffee do you drink per day? Um, two to three. Okay. A habit of yours that you really hate? That I really hate or really hate? Really hate, yeah. Really hate. Mm -hmm. Um, taking too long in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the most valuable skill you've learned in life? Um, to diversif diversify my skill set. Mm-hmm. And finally, your favorite Netflix show. Um, Stranger Things. Okay. Well, that's the end of the rapid fire round. You hesitated or didn't answer three questions. So we're going to give you seven on 10. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So let's go on to the bigger questions now. The first one is, uh, tell us more about uh, your company's scholarship owl and how it helps students. And do you focus on students all around the world? So scholarship owl helps connect between scholarship providers and students uh, seeking financial help for the education. Our mission is basically to make private scholarships a viable alternative to student loans. Mm -hmm. Today, we focus only on U.S. Uh, students. Uh, we we are looking into to expand internationally eventually, but today, 99% of our uh, students are U.S.-based. Mm 
but and yeah. what is oh go ahead no i just wanted to add that the the cost of education is the highest in the us so the problem is the biggest uh, the and is your website a subscription-based model or is it free to use? How, how do you go about charging students for this? So, uh, I mean, I need to go a bit deeper into what the, the, the mm -hmm. platform itself is. And basically what we do is we leverage AI and uh, machine learning and big data to uh, substantially increase the chances of, of students to win scholarships. Basically, like, um, to... Uh, to lower the time it takes them to apply to scholarships and to invest their time wisely where they have the highest chances. Uh, and the, the platform itself is a freemium. So we have a free version, which is just kind of the list and matching for, the, for scholarships. And then all the advanced data, like, um, you know, how much competition do you have? How test worthy the scholarship provider is? Are um machine learning based recommendation engine all of those things are uh, premium and uh, uh, basically you pay a monthly fee for the usage of the platform mm -hmm. so well scholarship out started working remotely much before the pandemic hit the world right so did you feel like you've already prepared for what lies ahead oh yeah we we started working remotely since 2015 uh, and uh, I must say that in terms of day-to-day -day operations in the company, um, we didn't feel a big impact on the pandemic other than I, I personally had a few flights scheduled for 2020 that got canceled. That based, But, you know, that's basically the scope, the full scope of the impact uh, on day-to-day -day operations in the company. Um, of course, working, you know, there's a big difference between working um, remotely and working in a pandemic because working remotely is the ability to work from anywhere but in a pandemic, you work only from home, you know, locked in a room that maybe is not really prepared for that. Uh, and in many cases, many companies are not prepared to work remotely as well because you need to adjust kind of your processes, the way you think and so on. Um, so for us, yes, we've been prepared, but I feel that many of the companies that kind of criticize remote work today are doing it, you know, like because they had to work remotely at gunpoint instead of... Mm actually go transitioning into it or doing it intentionally. And how do you think COVID has impacted the education industry? We hear news coming out of the UK where, you know, students are demanding a refund of their fees because the colleges weren't open and that one of the key criterion is the experience gained while in college physically. So what do you think of that whole moment movement and about, you know, how the education industry has been affected? Right. So the education industry has been severely impacted by COVID. Um, as you said, many students in a way feel cheated because some of the colleges charged full price, even though you know, most of the um, uh, most of the year has been remote and they didn't get the whole kind of college experience. You know, in some cases they cannot use the labs, they cannot use the facilities, they don't see the, the friends. Like it's a very different experience. Um, at least in the US, a lot of students have taken a gap year or kind of delayed some of the education. Um, and in fact, the attendance to colleges was much lower or like um, enrollment was much lower in 2020. 
I do anticipate it to recover in 2021 and once the world reopens and maybe even overcompensate for 2020. Um, on top of that, I feel that uh, learning, like the world of education wasn't prepared for remote learning. So when you try to teach remotely, you need to adjust the material. Um, you know, it's not just the professor standing in an empty classroom in front of a camera. It needs to be a more async way of learning. You need to have more helping material to kind of convey the information. Um, and in most cases, that wasn't done because there was just not enough time to prepare. So even the students that did study in 2020 in a more kind of almost a normal way, I don't think that they could learn as efficiently as they would in a classroom or alternatively if the education system had more time to adjust to remote learning hmm. then what's your take on online education do you think it can replace traditional modes of learning uh, do you think there's a university bubble that is going to burst or something and that online education is going to make more uh, inroads i definitely think that like the same way that uh, there's almost no job today that can cannot be done remotely. And I mean, mm -hmm. I've met remote uh, doctors and I've met remote architects. Um, and in fact, for example, in, in Israel now you have this, like I'm originally from, uh, from Tel Aviv and I just now, last month I saw in Israel that they adjusted the healthcare system to have, you know, Zoom calls with a doctor and all that kind of stuff, like a almost fully remote kind of doctor, like... Um, medical system as well i believe generally the world is going towards making the physical location irrelevant so you choose the place you're in based on uh you know where your friends are where you feel comfortable with the vibe and not just where you have the best infrastructure or your job is located and as part of this transformation i believe that education is going to go through the same transformation more and more education is going to happen uh online and remotely more and more work is going to be uh, happening online and remotely and uh, in a way 2020 the transformation to, to remote work many years forward in one year some even say you know like we jumped 10 years in one year in terms of remote work but on the other hand such quick transformation also causes a lot of pushback mm. which is only natural um and i think that a you know, the same way we started seeing conferences and events transforming at first just being on a Zoom call. And by now we see platforms such as Hopium or Elmeet and other platforms which are already kind of on the product side thought out and designed to accumulate, um, to accommodate uh, remote conferences. We'll start seeing more and more of that in uh, education as well. And I mean, we had some kind of sample of that in a, you know with Coursera and Udemy and other platforms um, that teach you in a way but it's still not as structured like and structured and organized like a university degree but we're definitely um, going there and I think that within the next you know five to ten years we're gonna start seeing the next generation of online education uh, popping up. Hmm. 
And but what do you think specifically coronavirus has done to the university economy itself? Like, because uh, I guess universities provide something additional, which is like the ability to network, which I guess the online world cannot capture in its entirety. So I would, I would assume that's one of their key. Uh, benefits is that they can provide this pace. Uh, is there any way you think that the online world world can capture all these courses online can capture what it means to actually make connections in university? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, online education doesn't capture the networking. Mm. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, it doesn't even try to capture that. Even the platforms, you know, the platforms I mentioned earlier, or even the new platforms that we start seeing now, they do not try to kind of create a networking effect between the students. At the same time, I start seeing the same way that uh, in the, you know, in the work world, it used to be that most of your friends and, you know, like your um most of the people you meet during the week are the people you work with. And once you start working remotely, that's no longer the case. The people you meet are the people that in your physical environment or the people you meet in conferences, events, meetups, and so on, which are separate from work. And I think that eventually the role of education as, as a networking channel will become less permanent. Uh, I'm curious to see how things like uh, fraternities and other kind of social clubs uh, on campus would transform. Um, maybe it's going to be something like like the co-living and co-workings we start seeing now. Maybe it's going to be something completely different. But anything that becomes remote kind of has this tendency to focus on its core goal and not on the secondary benefits, if that makes mm. any sense. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Uh, what do you think of, because uh, I guess you said you're focused mainly on the US, uh, uh, US education scene, but we are seeing now in you know, QS world rankings, etc., that a lot of universities from China and a lot of universities from other parts of the world are starting to become places where people want to go to so what is your plan for expansion are you going to expand into asia are you going to expand into europe um well in terms of ex plan of expansion definitely uh, we will expand eventually to asia uh, again it's not something that is immediate um right now but definitely something we are monitoring and looking into um one interesting thing I'm, 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 I start seeing is that uh, um, more and more U.S. students are interested to go to universities in Europe and in Asia other than the other way around. Hmm. Uh, and uh, these are basically students in STEM fields or uh, is it science fields or are they students in like literature fields? What fields are these? Um, I, I wouldn't say that I can nail it down to a specific, uh, type mm. of degree, or, but obviously, uh, STEM fields have more of an incentive to go, you know, um, 
I would say that it's actually more not STEM fields because mm -hmm. as a STEM student, you do want to be at least for now closer to the Valley and closer, um, you know, to the high profile Ivy League uh, US universities. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we started seeing um, recently in general is that, you know, the Valley is no longer the Valley. With more and more yeah, people moving exactly, from yeah. the Valley to Miami and to like, and uh, to Texas uh, and so on. So even the the whole, you know, tech industry in general becomes global more than ever before. So yeah, we're witnessing the decentralization of thought in a way. <laughs> and what do you think of the? Uh the fee structure because i guess it's increasing every year is it coming down with the pandemic like you know the tuition fees of american colleges is it affordable is it uh something that would still tempt students to attend university or is it going to push them away um so the universities themselves didn't do much to change it including as you mentioned earlier that uh, some students were protesting with and the fact that universities kept the same high tuition, even though the classes are no longer on the facilities. Um, there are interesting things that are happening, um, you know, under uh, uh, under the new uh, government in the mm -hmm. US, under the new administration, which in a way kind of make college a little bit more accessible. But um, I don't see it becoming kind of, you know, it's not a major change yet. Maybe we'll see more of it down the road. Fair. And what is the one thing that you have learned in your career was really important to, you know, where you are with marketing scholarship out today? Like, give us one tactic with which you are marketing it. Um, so... Before Scholarship Owl, I was in uh, in Waze, in Google, before that in a company called MetaCafe. I don't know if you remember that. It was a big competitor of YouTube many years ago. Ah, oh, I think uh, so, yeah. Hmm. And uh, uh, one thing that I feel that I learned throughout my career, but I don't use enough in kind of, you know, uh, in my journey going forward, is leveraging the power of a community is having like having a more open and transparent communication with your users and letting them help you build a better product and go together with them. Um, we are doing quite a bit of that now. Uh, we in scholarship hour, we try to launch community three times. Um, and now the third attempt I think is succeeding, mm. but we had two fa two miserably failed attempts. Uh, and I think that we went to in this direction too late. I think it's generally something that any product should, I'd say that start a community even before focusing on uh, on paid user acquisition channels. I mean, mm -hmm. should come both, but, but it's definitely something that can be better utilized, um, especially in product companies. And what are some of the tactics you're using to create a community? Is it like Facebook groups? Where are these communities? All right. So uh, the most important thing is that you go where your users are. 
And we, for example, did that same mistake as we started with a Facebook group, and that was one of the mm -hmm. failed attempts, right? Uh, today, we, we have a community on Discord, which is, mm -hmm. you know, but working with students, that's where, the, where they are naturally. And mm -hmm. an important thing is not to try to, you know, to let the community kind of build itself, but push it forward as well. Uh, you know, have it engage it, have competitions on, you know, like things that are happening there, events. It's very, very important. And that's basically the fastest channel to see the reaction of your users towards your product. Um, yeah. So. Okay. So the last question we have for you is, what would you be doing if not Scholarship Owl? Like, what would you be doing right now in the world? <laughs> Scuba diving uh, somewhere. <laughs> well, yes, but probably I wouldn't make scuba diving my full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, I would probably build, you know, a solo project because now is a perfect time to build like solo products with mm -hmm. things like hosting and billing and marketing being so accessible. At a, if you're building something at a small to medium scale. You don't, don't necessarily have to go, you know, raise millions of dollars. If you have the knowledge of how to do marketing and development and design and product, or at least even basic knowledge and those, all of those things, just go and build your own product. And then, you know, if it goes, then you think about maybe building a team, but probably go the this out. <laughs> well, sounds good. So I guess we'll... Uh, interview you in a couple of years about your new product if it ever happens <laughs> but uh, that's the end of the episode well, uh, yeah, hopefully a couple of years from here from now I'm still <laughs> in scholarship all it's just you know a much much bigger company than we are now <laughs> fair all right well thanks everyone for joining us for this month's episode of outgrows market of the month that was David Tabachnikov who is the CEO at scholarship owl thanks for joining us David Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was fun. <laughs> Do check out their website for more details and we'll see you once again next month with another Marketer of the Month.